So here's a story. I've told it before, so some of you might recognize it. It's a true story. About seven years ago, Janelle and I and our children had, had just moved from Cheltenham, England to Houston, Texas. I had just been hired as an adjunct professor at the Houston Graduate School of Theology, which was across town. And that means something different in Houston than it does in Harrisonburg. (laughs) It's closer to D.C. across town. Except Texans don't believe in no public transportation. We all have a couple of vehicles. Just in case one is, you know, not ready. Except Janelle and I, we only had one car. And uh, in the absence of public transportation, we needed a second car. But there was one piece missing from the story, money. (laughs) We were very, very poor, no savings, no money. So we worked on our budget and we scratched out a way that we could afford a small car. No, we we had nothing to outright buy a car. So we started looking around, and uh, one day I'm on this used car um, lot, and we found there's this car, and it fits right in our criteria. It's small, good gas mileage, cheap. But suddenly, deep inside of me, I have this sense that God doesn't want us to buy the car. So I go home. And I tell Janelle, I, I really don't think that we're supposed to buy that car or any car, which, which was a little tricky because the semester's fast approaching and I've signed a contract that I'll be there, you know, every certain day at this time. A couple of days later, a friend that we hadn't talked to in a long time that lived a couple hours away called me out of the blue and said, Aubrey, Teresa and I would like to give you a car. Now, they didn't know we were looking for a car. Um, and it was exactly what we needed. We, we called it the silver bullet. It was this little, uh, like 1992 Toyota Tercel and bullet was not about its speed, but its size. It was this, but it was everything we needed. Now you might think that story sounds quaint or hokey or just the kind of thing Christians do to add coincidences up to some cosmic being. But you weren't there. I was there. See, with David in Psalm 23, I can tell you, the Lord is my shepherd and I shall not want. That's what David was saying. He's saying that the the massive creator God of the cosmos guides me protects me, cares for me. The Lord is my, singular, my shepherd. Now think about this. David, we know that he was a shepherd. You can just imagine this, right? He's looking at these sheep. These sheep. I, I remember walking in, into the pastures with my grandfather. Every day he would go out and he'd put his hand on his cows and He had a sense of who they were and if one was missing, which one was missing. Here's David. He's looking at his sheep, the sheep that he cares for and that he protects. And he's realizing that, that, that he has such a thing in his own life. And this thing in his life is the creator. 
This is astonishing. That the one whose splendor outshines a million suns also personally cares for one of the sheep. Now at the time David wrote this poem, there was nothing new about calling God a shepherd. Israel, in fact, had been calling God a shepherd for 800 years when David wrote this. Egypt referred to a God as a shepherd. What's unique here, what's uniquely powerful here is the pronoun. That's what's new. That's what has never been said. We have no example in any ancient Near Eastern literature of any person ever referring to the creator God or any God for that matter as a personal shepherd. The God was always the shepherd of the nation. This was a radical moment in religion. The idea of God as my shepherd. And because of God's personal care for David, David said, I shall not want. Me. I'm not going to want. He's confident in God's attentiveness. In God's provision and God's guidance. He's personally experienced it in his own life. And he's confident that it will be there in the future. Look how he ends the psalm. Psalm 23 verse 6. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me. It's the image of two sheepdogs, right? Chasing the flock around. Following the sheep in ways that are fun and sometimes in ways that are not fun, right? Surely the sheepdog... Mercy and the sheepdog goodness is never going to let me go. They're going to track me. They're going to follow me. And it's not just provision and guidance that David talks about. When God is your shepherd, David said there's protection. Look at verses 4 and 5, Psalm 23. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Now notice, God doesn't always give you the free car. Sometimes you beg him for it. You think everything in the world depends upon it. And you still walk into the valley of the shadow of death. See, David's not a Pollyanna. He's not saying just because you have a shepherd and just because you ask him, he will always do exactly what you want and you won't ever suffer. You won't ever be afraid. There won't ever be darkness or confusion. No, right in the heart of the psalm is, okay, even though you're my shepherd, sometimes there will be these moments and for some people decades in which I am in the valley of the shadow and death. But notice what he says, and you will always get me out of it. That's not what he says. He says, but in those moments, I still won't be afraid. I will fear no evil. Does that mean no evil will fall on me? No, 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 no. It means even when evil is there, I'm not going to be afraid. Even when I take it in the teeth. I'm not going to be afraid. Even when the new car doesn't get there and I lose the job and I go into bankruptcy, I still will not be afraid. He never says anything about the absence of evil. In fact, he assumes that this is life, that David knows that. Just read the story of his life. 
He's not saying that God is a shepherd means I always get the easy path. I will not suffer. No, there will still be enemies and pain and suffering and loss and hard times. And yet even in the midst of that, even down in the depths of that, God is there. And as a result, I won't fear. Not I won't fear that that might happen to me, but I won't fear when it does happen to me. See, God is not some cosmic, cuddly grandfather, always swooping in with a piece of candy. But he's also not some abstract cosmic force. No, David's deep trust in God's ultimate control allowed God to still mysteriously lead his life. It gave him a secure confidence that even in the valley of the shadow of death, the thirsty will be satisfied and there will be a day when the slandered will be vindicated. God will prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. In this psalm, there is a profound underlying conception of the infinite God that is personally attentive. God, the one and only, all-powerful, all-knowing, everywhere present God, is good. And in the midst of this broken world, David says, that affects me. That gives me confidence and peace. And it gives me the ability to have an even keel. I mean, just, just, just read the psalm right before this. Not right now, but it's Psalm 22. David is not a Pollyanna. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's the psalm that comes right before this. He knows that there are moments that the presence of God is so veiled, you cannot see it. You cannot feel it. And you go all the way to your death, longing to sense it. And yet, my God is my shepherd. Now, fast forward a thousand years or about 700 pages, depending on how your Bible functions, and find John chapter 10. John chapter 10 Here is Jesus walking the same piece of real estate, Israel, Palestine. And he says to the descendants of King David, Hey, you remember King David? You remember how he called God his shepherd? Guess what? That's me. I am that God. I am. Am the shepherd of Psalm 23. I am the good shepherd. And then he immediately identifies what makes a good shepherd. You know what makes Jesus a good shepherd? John 10, verse 11. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays his life down for the sheep. That's what makes him good. Verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. Verse 17, I lay down my life. Verse 18, I lay it down of my own accord. 
We know what Jesus is telling them. Now, you heard me read verses 1 to 10. They didn't get it. But we get it, don't we? We know what he's talking about. He's not being abstract, is he? When he says, in theory, in metaphor, I lay my life down for you. No, you know what Jesus did? He laid down on a piece of wood. He let them nail him to it. Who? For who? For Sean. And for Russ and Sarah. And for me. Jesus said, look, not only am I the shepherd that knows you personally, I am so good. I will die for you. Now think about how radical this is. Here is a nation that has witnessed the sacrifice of how many thousand sheep for the shepherds. Every time they went to worship, they take a sheep. And here is Jesus that totally messes with all their categories and says, not only am I your shepherd, but guess what I'm going to do? I'm also going to become your sheep. I'm going to become the shepherd who climbs up on the altar and lays his life down. He blows all of the categories. I'm a shepherd who is a sheep, and that's what makes me good. And of course, Jesus is talking about the the cross. He's talking about his death on the cross, the good shepherd offering up his own life to defeat our enemy, to conquer evil, to conquer death, to take away our sins. To give us forgiveness. To give us the, the, the incredible privilege of being reconciled to our creator and to one another. That's the first mark of a good shepherd in John 10. The, the second mark of a good shepherd in John 10 comes up in verse 14. I know my own and my own know me. Now, this part of the Bible was originally written in a dialect of the Greek language called Corne Greek. And the word know here, it's a word that means personally know. It, it's a word that means intimately know. Intimate relational knowledge. It's not a generic knowledge. It's what David was getting at with his pronoun. I know Aaron and Alec. I know them. And look what it says in verse 3. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the creator God, this huge cosmic God, that he cares and is attentive to your particular Pains, needs, struggles, sufferings? Do you believe that he speaks to you personally? That he not only has rules for how life should be lived, but that he has a particular concern for your life and the path you take. He knows me. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name. You see, as we learn to listen and hear the voice of Jesus Christ, our maker, the good shepherd, we have the incredible privilege of this remarkable relationship developing that is a thread of love between us and our maker, the shepherd. The shepherd's voice 
is powerful and it is patient. It never tires of calling. Did you catch verse 16? I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. Is that you? Are you, are you outside of everything I'm talking about right now? Do you hear me saying these things about how the creator is also personally caring and that he will speak to you and lead you and care for you and protect you? Do you find yourself thinking, well, I wish I could have that. Look, he says he cares for you and he's going to call to you. And if you will listen, he will be there. He, Jesus Christ will call you no matter how far you are, no matter what has happened in your life. No matter the enormous barriers between you and the good shepherd. He cares about you. If you're not in his family, he cares. And he longs for you to be in his family. He wants you to be, he wants you to be able to look fear and death and suffering and pain in the eye and not be undone by it. He wants you to be able to live your life resting on the remarkable trust That your creator is your intimate lover. He wants you to know that he will walk ahead of you. And he will walk beside you. No matter what the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death is in your life. This is who Jesus is. He is the good shepherd. He is a guide. He is good. And if you listen and follow his voice, he will bring you into a relationship with him that will not eliminate the valleys, but will profoundly change your experience of the valleys. Now, in our scripture reading this morning, there have been two other passages. The passage in Acts chapter 4 and the passage that John rescued us and came and read from 1 John. Now, why are these passages there? Because they give us two concrete examples of what the shape of a life is that knows Christ as the good shepherd. Acts chapter 4. Peter and John had gone to the temple to worship this Christ, this good shepherd. And along the way, there was somebody who was hurting and who was lame. And what did they do? They laid hands on him. They prayed for him. And then a big crowd gathered, amazed at the miracle. And they immediately said to the crowd, you know what happened here? Jesus healed this man. Well, people got all excited. Now, the religious leaders didn't like that. Why didn't they like that? Because they didn't like Jesus. We know they didn't like Jesus because they had just murdered Jesus. Right? These are the people who had killed Jesus. So when they look at Peter and John and say to them, we're mad at you. That's a serious issue. They, ha- they know how to kill. And they've already decided they will kill this religion. And you know what Peter and John do in the valley of the shadow of death? They fear no evil. We're reading through the book of Daniel as a family right now in our evening devotions. The other night was the story with um, Nebuchadnezzar and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he built this huge fire. And he said, look, if you don't worship my idol, I will throw you into the fire. And, they, and he looks at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego who stand straight up with steel in their spine. And they refuse to bow down and worship this idol. And King Nebuchadnezzar says, don't you know what I can do to you? And they say, you know what they say? Yes, we know. 
We know that you can throw us in that fire. And, you, and then they say, this is beautiful scene where they say, and you know what? You throw us in that fire and God might not save us or he might. But anyway, it goes. We ain't afraid of you. See, I will fear no evil doesn't mean I have the Pollyanna view that the evil will never occur. It means I won't ever fear it when it does. Do you know Peter and John, all of the evidence indicates, guess what happened to them by the end of their life? Murdered for their faith. All the evidence is indicating that. John, at the end of his life, he's a prisoner exiled to this rocky island. They do not look at these bad people and think, God will get me out of this. They think God will be with me in this, whatever way it goes. You see, because they trusted in the good shepherd, because they put all of the weight of their faith on Jesus, his death and resurrection, they could live with courage in the present moment. That's Acts chapter 4. Now, when we turn to 1 John chapter 3, we see another way that this relationship with God as your good shepherd works out. And if you have a Bible, please turn there. 1 John chapter 3. Verse 16. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. Now, being willing to lay your life down for somebody is noble. And most likely, you will never get that opportunity. And sitting around thinking of love as my capacity to be a martyr can lead you astray. What he says here is that you've got to be willing in the meanwhile. You've got to be willing now to make material sacrifices for those in need. And don't wait for a bodily sacrifice. Do you see what he says here? Lay your life down. Lay your life down. Yeah, we know this is love. But then he comes right out of that and says, But if anyone has the world's good and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Do you see how John takes the love of Christ and pushes it to a very concrete reality? Here's what I'm trying to say. Christians, you can boil Christianity down to three words. Faith, hope, and love. That defines Christianity so long as you allow Christianity to define those three words. It's not general faith. It's Peter and John because of their faith that Jesus' death secured their forgiveness and guaranteed their ultimate feasting at the table. See, look at it this way. I put my faith in the cross and the resurrection. I lean on that with all of my weight, trusting that Jesus really did die for me. 
And when he rose from the dead, he really did conquer death. That gives me biblical hope. Biblical hope is not um, wishing everything works out. It's the deep confidence that if I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and actually succumb to death and don't make it out of it, if I endure injustice and I am not rescued, if I get fired from my job unfairly, if a teacher at school uses their power in an unjust way against me, if my spouse turns against me unjustly, in God's mysterious will, that might be the end of the story for me. There are plenty of good people who die from an absolutely random car wreck. And there are plenty of bad people who get healed of cancer. But if I can lean all of my weight on the cross and, and, the, and the resurrection and in that learn to hope that whatever is said and done here in this life, there will come a day when all of the injustice will be righted. When every wrong done to me will be, that he will prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. All the undocumented citizens in America who are crushed under the weight of our unjust immigration system. There will come a day when they will feast at a table in the presence of the powers that crushed them. All of the people who have been crushed by pain and suffering, you can have hope. It might happen in this life, but it will happen in the life. Because that's what the cross and the resurrection means. You see, the resurrection is Jesus coming to the other side of death, looking at death like LeBron looks at somebody dunks on and says, Chump, that's all you got. And you see behind me miles and centuries of people who are going to do the same thing to you. They are going to die and then they're going to stand up and they're going to see death has lost its sting. That doesn't mean death is gone. That means I can stare death down and I won't flinch. I will go to my grave unflinching because of Christian hope. That's Christian hope. It's a secure confidence that all things will be made new. Now notice what happens in 1 John. If a person lives with faith in the cross and the resurrection and with hope in the renewal of all things, you know what it enables me to do? Lay my life down now for the good of my city. See, this faith and this hope gives us the ability to be the people of God. Now, now, here's where it gets tricky and really interesting. That hope, you would think it would lead Christians to not care about their cities or this earth because one day it's all going to be fixed. But the steady drumbeat of the Bible is no. That faith and that hope allows us to do what other people cannot do. It allows us to... 
to lay our lives down for the good of others, to make material sacrifices for the good of others. Because no matter what pain our service of love brings, we have a secure hope. See, I can forgive the person that has sinned against me because I've been forgiven. And I don't have to worry about their judgment because God's going to judge them. So I can go ahead and forgive them now. See, some of us are waiting on judgment to forgive. You're demanding that the situation be made right before you forgive. No, the Christian life in between faith and hope enables you to forgive prior to the judgment. Prior to the sorting out of all things. Living with faith and hope enables us who will not be given the opportunity of martyrdom to live like an extended family. See, living with love for a church means living like an extended family. Extended family. When somebody you're kin to but don't spend much time with gets married, you go. Because it's your cousin getting married. So we're in a church and Stephanie and Chris are getting married. And a lot of you aren't accustomed to going to weddings that you haven't got a personal invitation to of somebody you know deeply. Because that's the way the world works. But we're a church. We don't work that way. We go to Chris and Stephanie's wedding. You know why? Because that's my extended family. I'm not saying that, there's, that if you don't go, you're a bad person. That might be the case. It really might be. It really might be you don't go simply because you don't know how to function as an extended family. There, there are some legitimate reasons not to go. And God knows. And I'll not judge you, but he will. And not just, not just weddings... It means what so many of you are already doing. I, I hear stories quite frequently. Uh, this this uh, last Friday, I was doing a lecture in North Carolina on how to preach the Old Testament. And Stephen Wolf went with me. And Stephen talked about how um, there's been a lot of loneliness in his life. And on Easter morning, Stephen and Leah Napotnik walked up to him and said, Do you have plans for Easter? Come over. They, nev- they didn't even know Stephen and Karen. But they saw somebody that was extended family that there's a chance they were going to be alone. And they said, you know what? We're going to stay in Harrisonburg because we finally found a family. And one time later on in the conversation, I was asking Stephen, what do you guys tend to do on the weekends? They said, well, lately we've been spent, we, the Napotniks have been inviting us over. And it was a game changer. And now they're hoping to buy a house. Look, we've got to learn how to operate like this. We, and you know what? It's not fun always. It's not fun to invite people over for Christmas dinner that you don't know deeply. I mean, it's awkward. It's not as comfortable. But because of faith and because of hope, we can make the sacrifice of love. To care for one another like extended family. And not just for one another, but for our city. You see, we can look at a city. And like the New Testament Christians, we can serve it in love even when it has policies that harm us. You know why? We don't have to get riled up about its policies that work against us because it's going to be made right one day. And that frees us 
To have this profound security. To not get all riled up and go marching and demonstrating and demand this, that, and the other. But to just lay our lives down for this city so that this city is a better place. And we take it in the teeth and we smile right back. You know why? Because he will prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Let's pray.